Well, uh, this morning we are wrapping up a short series through the Old Testament, which that sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? A short series through the Old Testament. And uh, what we've been doing is we've been looking at the plot line of the Old Testament. We've been uh, really flying through it over these last uh, three weeks and now today on this fourth week. And the big idea here isn't necessarily to dive deep into uh, many passages of Scripture because we just don't have time. My goal in this series is to give you the plot line of the Old Testament. What's the storyline? You know, I, and, and part of it is just my heart, I think, as a teacher, because I grew up in the church. I grew up in a church. I went to, uh, we called it Thursday night school. It was confirmation classes from the time I was in first grade through eighth grade. Every Thursday night of my life in the school year was spent learning things about God, about two hours every Thursday night. I memorized all kinds of creeds. I memorized scripture verses. But you know what? I didn't, I didn't know a lick about how the Bible fit together. I knew some of these stories, but I had no idea where they fit in conjunction with one another. You know, it's, it's kind of like the person who, uh, uh, you, you ever been with somebody and they're quoting a movie, but you have no idea what the movie is? And so you just kind of fake laugh like, oh, that was really funny, but you have no idea what they're talking about. Um, th- that's, the, that's, that's how most people are with scripture, especially the Old Testament. They hear a story, they're like, yeah, I've heard of Moses, I've heard of David, I've I've heard of of some of these people. I've heard of Goliath. But I have no idea really how that all fits together. And so quickly, over four weeks, we're trying to give you the main thread that goes through. So should we we review it together this morning? And then today we're going to wrap it up. We'll start in Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created everything simply by speaking it, the psalmist tells us. Just like uh, light, (laughs) and there was light. And uh, land, and there was land. I mean, that's amazing to think about. And he spoke everything into existence, and everything was good. And everything was perfect. And he created Adam, and he created Eve. And he created them at the pinnacle of his creation in his image. You and I are the pinnacle of God's creation because we bear his image. Nothing else in creation does that. And he gave Adam and Eve one rule. He placed them in this garden, uh, which I've told you was a huge mass of land, similar to maybe Yellowstone, uh, in modern modern day Yellowstone. And he put them in this garden and he said, uh, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over it, take care of it. Uh, Just don't eat from this one tree right in the middle. They're like, okay, that sounds great. And he said, because if you eat of it, what's going to happen? You're going to die. What would they do? They ate of it. We don't know how long they lasted, but they ate of it. And before we go ripping on Adam and Eve for messing that up, going, how'd you eat from that one tree? Just realize you and I would have probably done the exact same thing. Because the enemy comes to Eve and uh, the enemy's goal, Satan's goal, is to undo everything God had put in place. Sometime before Adam and Eve's sin, we're not sure exactly when, but, but Satan was an angel of the Lord and he became prideful. And in his pride, he wanted to be God. And we're told about it in Revelation and in Isaiah. And he was cast down out of heaven because of his sin. He, and, he, and he took a third of God's angels with him. And those angels are now demons. And at some, we're not told when that happens, but before Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 3, he comes to Eve in the form of a serpent. And he tempts her and he says, did God really say not to eat from that tree? 
And he's like, um, or did he really say not to eat from any tree in the garden? See, he twists God's word. And she said, no, he said not to eat from this tree or we'll surely die. And he says, oh, you won't die. You surely won't die. And uh, so she believes him. And she takes the fruit and she takes a bite. And then she turns to her husband who is standing right there doing nothing and gives the piece of fruit to him. And he takes a bite. And now suddenly everything changes. Everything up until this point was perfect. Perfect relationship, perfect friendship, perfect marriage, no suspicion, no shame, no arguments. Everything was perfect. But now immediately, the text tells us they realized they were naked. They felt shame for the first time ever. And they hid themselves. And they clothed themselves with uh, big fig leaves and uh, the next thing we see is that God comes through the garden and he says, hey, where, where are you? Where are you? Now, obviously, he knew where they were, but uh, he wanted them to confess. And they stepped forward and they, they were like, uh, well, we're hiding because <laughs> we're naked. And he, God's like, well, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? And clearly they had. And so uh, God uh, then begins to meet out his judgment and his discipline for their sin. But what's really curious, because he, he starts with, with Satan, then he goes to the woman, then he goes to the, or then he goes to the, to the woman, then he goes to the man. But the thing he does before he ever meets out any judgment in Genesis 3.15, do you know what it is? He promises to fix it all. Before he ever addresses how they messed it up, he says, I'm going to fix this. In Genesis 3.15. And he says to the serpent, her offspring will crush your head. You'll bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And a head wound is much worse than a foot wound. And that offspring of that woman ultimately is going to be Jesus. And the rest of the Old Testament now is tracing that promise to figure out when is God going to send someone through the woman? And who is it? And how is he going to fix it? And that's the theme of the Old Testament. It's all tracing that promise from Genesis 3.15. And so as you trace the promise, you go and people begin uh, getting more and more wicked. Right away in Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel, two brothers with uh, not a good ending. Cain kills his brother because of jealousy. And then you get to chapter 5 and you realize everybody lived a long time and then he died. And then he died and then he died. And finally, God's like, you know what? These people have gotten so wicked. Let's just wipe it all out and start over again. And so he starts over with a guy by the name of Noah. And God, it says God showed favor to Noah and then Noah walked with God. And and God saved Noah and his three sons and their wives. And he did it in a pretty miraculous way. And Noah trusted the Lord. See, at this time, uh, some people theorized that it had never rained yet on the earth, that there was a canopy above the earth and that when when God goes to Noah and he says, hey, I need you to build a big boat. I need you to take two of every animal into the boat, male and female. And uh, what I need you to do is build this because then I'm going to flood the whole earth with rain. It's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And if, if that's true, Noah had never seen rain. No one had ever seen rain. Yet Noah obeyed the Lord. And it takes him over 100 years to build this huge boat. And he builds it and the, the flood waters come. And you can imagine all the people who had been making fun of Noah before when he was building the boat in the middle of land, 
were pounding on the ark to get in when it was too late. It's a good reminder that today is the day of salvation, Paul writes. And there comes a day where it's too late to trust Jesus. Don't be like the people outside the ark pounding, trying to get in when it's too late. Trust him today. Well, after Noah, um, they get off the boat and they start over and God tells them, just like he did to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And they were fruitful and they multiplied, but they didn't fill the earth. And they, instead they build this big tower to themselves, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And so God says, okay, well, fine, then I'm going to confuse your languages and divide the nations so that you fulfill my purpose and fill the earth. And that's what happens. And then in Genesis 12, God picks a man by the name of Abram. And he makes a covenant with him. He says, Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to give you a great land. And uh, he does this. Uh, By the way, Abram believes the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness because Abraham didn't become a father with his wife, Sarah, until he was 100 years old. (laughs) And then Abraham gave birth or Sarah gave birth to Isaac. And the promise comes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And Jacob had a super dysfunctional family. And Jacob, the the promise goes through his son, Judah, and his other son, Joseph, who Judah came up with this idea. We don't like Joseph. Let's sell him into slavery. Um, Joseph gets everybody into the land of Egypt. And in God's incredible grace, uh, Joseph, who had all kinds of terrible things happen to him, not at his own fault, uh, God uses his faithfulness and uses his obedience to raise him up to second in command to Pharaoh. And a famine comes, and Noah was a great planner and did a great job of preparing for this famine. And all the nations of the earth come to Egypt, and they come to Joseph looking for food. Well, all of his brothers that he hasn't seen for decades, along with his father, show up in Egypt looking for food. And Pharaoh, because he loved Joseph, uh, gave refuge to all of Joseph's family. Seventy of them in all came and settled in Egypt. And then there's 400 years when they're in Egypt between the end of Genesis and into the book of Exodus where these people multiply. I mean, they multiply into a great nation over these 400 years. And God's fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Well, after 400 years, they're a huge nation and there's a new Pharaoh who's in power and he's afraid of all these people. He's afraid of them. And uh, so he uh, burdens them with great uh, oppression and slavery and great burdens. And um, uh, they cry out to God for help. And he raises up a guy by the name of Moses. And Moses delivers God's people through the plagues. And he crosses the Red Sea. And what's happening, God's fulfilled his promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation. Now he's working on fulfilling that promise of giving his descendants a land. And Moses is going to lead them out of Egypt and back to the promised land. And so as they're going, before they get there, they have a pit stop. They stop at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God gives them instructions for what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to live once they get back to the land. And he gives them, they're called the Ten Commandments. And you know how you can summarize those Ten Commandments? Uh, When you get into the land, if you choose to sin, you're choosing to suffer. But if you choose to obey, you're choosing blessing. So choose to obey. That's Josh's summary of the Ten Commandments. You can sum them up just like that. Choose to sin, choose to suffer, choose to obey, choose blessing. Well, they get to this place called Kadesh. 
And at Kadesh, God tells Moses, send in spies to spy out the land and see this good place I'm giving to you. And they send in 12 spies, one from each tribe. And they go in and they come back with a report. They were there for 40 days. And when they come back, uh, 10 of them, all of them actually said, it's a great land. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's amazing. But then 10 pointed out uh, that the cities are huge. The people are huge. The cities are all fortified. We're like grasshoppers to them. They're going to crush us. Uh, Let's go back to Egypt. And go back to slavery. Yet two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, no, no. Uh, God gave us this land. He brought, didn't you see like what he did to bring us here? Haven't you seen how good he's been to us? We can trust him to go into the land. Let's trust him. Let's go. Let's quit being afraid. Let's come on. Well, the people believed the ten. And God is furious because they showed no faith after all the good things he had done for them. And so he sends discipline upon them. Originally, he wanted to wipe them out, but Moses prays for him, and he relents. And instead, he's going to cause that whole generation to wander in the wilderness. One year for every day the spies were in the land. So for 40 years, they wander and they die. Over a million people. Uh, I think I told you that you figure this out. Over 40 years, it's about 60-some people a day have to die for 40 years for the whole generation to die. Joshua and Caleb and their families and the generations after them are the only ones who will enter the land. And because of the sin of these people who had no faith, everyone suffers. Joshua and Caleb didn't even get the chance to step out in faith. Even that opportunity was robbed from them. Well, 40 years later, they get around, and Moses himself even didn't get in, but Joshua leads them into the land, and he leads them in, and uh, they divide and conquer the land. And um, you see it happen that when they choose to sin, they suffer, but when they choose to obey, there's blessing. And for the most part, in the book of Joshua, they choose to obey. But then after Joshua, a generation after him, uh, the people forgot all the good things the Lord had done for them again, and they chose to sin And so they began to suffer. And for 400 years, there's this cycle that takes place called the cycle of the judges. And you can read about it in the book of Judges where God's people uh, uh, would disobey God. So he would send a foreign enemy in like the Moabites or the Philistines or the Midianites. And they would conquer them and oppress them. And they'd oppress them sometimes for decades. And the people of God would begin crying out, God, don't you see what's happening? Won't you rescue us? And so he hears their cry and he rescues them by sending a judge who delivers them. And this judge delivers them. And then there's peace for the entire lifetime of the the rest of the lifetime of that judge. But as soon as the judge dies, guess what happens? The cycle repeats and they sin and he sends an oppressor and they cry out and he raises up a judge. And this cycle repeats itself and it gets worse and worse and worse until at the end of Judges, it says that there was no king in Israel and all the people just simply did what was right in their own eyes. And the people begin clamoring for a king. See, they they forgot to realize that God was their king, that he had kept his promise to Abraham of a great multitude and and given them a great land. And he's fulfilling his promise through this people, through the people of Abraham, through the people of Israel from Genesis 3.15. But they're like, "We we want a king. We want a king like all the other nations have a king. All those nations that have been sacking us all the time, they all had kings. We need a king. Not realizing, well, it was your sin is the reason that they were sacking you. And so God relents and he gives them a king. 
And the king he gives them is a guy by the name of Saul. And Saul is like your Disney fairy tale prince, right? He's head and shoulders above everyone else. He's more handsome, the text says, and stronger than anyone else in Israel. And Saul just looked the part. I won't sing Gaston to you this morning like I did last week. Saul looked the part. And Saul, though, uh, had no heart for the Lord. Uh, Saul started well, but then it was, it was revealed clearly he was all about himself and not about the Lord. So God raises up a new king by the name of David. And David has a heart for the Lord. He has a whole heart. And God chooses David. And he makes a covenant with David. And he reiterates his promise to Abraham. And then he says, and by the way, this one from Genesis 3.15, the one who's going to fix all of this, he's going to sit on your throne, King David. He's going to sit on your throne and I'm going to establish your throne forever. And uh, after David then comes his son Solomon, whose heart was divided. And Solomon builds a temple to the Lord. But because of his sin, he chose to sin. So he chose to suffer. And because of his divided heart, the kingdom of Israel was divided. See, Solomon, uh, when he was obeying the Lord, there was no one wiser, no one better as a king. Israel's borders were never bigger, have never been bigger than they were when Solomon was king. It was the golden age of Israel. But because of his sin, the whole nation was divided. And the 10 tribes of the north became Israel. And the two tribes to the south became Judah. And over time, these 10 tribes in the north have 19 different kings over 200 years. Solomon dies in 922 BC. And uh, these 19 kings, every one of them is wicked. And so God sends judgment. And even though we we covered this in passing last week, I want to start there today as we wrap up the rest of the story. So turn with me, if you will, to 2 Kings chapter 17 as we wrap up the story of the Old Testament. 2 Kings chapter 17. It says, in the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel. And he reigned for nine years. And he did, uh, he was a king over Israel. We know all of them were what? Wicked. He did, verse 2, what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. And Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to So, the king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. So do you see the story? Uh, uh, Hosea becomes king of Israel, and uh, he's uh, uh, conquered, in a sense, by Assyria, forced to pay tribute to them. And then he decides to go and make a pact with Egypt, and he quits paying his taxes, his tributes to Assyria. So Assyria is coming in uh, to take him out. Look at verse 5, end of verse 4. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. When the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria, and he placed them in Halah, and on the harbor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. Look at verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. In 722 BC, God sends in the Assyrians 
to, to, to sack the Israelites, to sack the northern kingdom and conquer them and carry them away. It says that Shalmaneser besieged them for three years. We'll talk about what that looks like here in just a moment. And they were carried away. And then as you, if you look down to verse 24, uh, by the way, it says through the rest of chapter 17 that God sent prophets over and over and over to them, warning them, but they continued to ignore. It says in verse 14, they would not listen, but they were stubborn. Well, in verse 24, the king of Assyria brought the people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and uh, Sephravim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. See, here's what the Assyrians would do. They would conquer you, and they'd pick you up and put you in a different land, and then they'd take people from a different land and pick them up and put them in your land so that you would just be totally demoralized. And some of the people that were left behind began, the Jewish people who were left behind in Israel began to marry with these people who were put in Samaria from other places, and hence you have the birth of the Samaritans in the New Testament, intermarrying with uh, people who served and worshipped other gods. Well, the southern tribes, so the, the northern tribes have all been scattered because of their sin. And the southern tribes fare a little better because of their 19 kings. Uh, eight of them were actually somewhat good. And so God delays judgment to them, but it still comes. And 130-some years later, in 586 B.C., Judah, too, is sacked by, this time, Babylon and carried into exile. And all of it, just like it was in 2 Kings 17, occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. They chose to sin, and so they chose to suffer. And God's going to carry them and take them into exile because of their sin. Uh, I'm going to go down one little rabbit trail with you here quickly. Is that okay? I want to show it to you how we, you know, maybe you're reading this and you're going, I, yeah, okay, that's great. But I don't know if I really buy the whole fact that, even, that God's word is even all that true. How do I know somebody didn't make all this up? How do I know? Well, remember I told you, I know I'm throwing a lot of dates at you. It's kind of like history class today, right? So just track with me. In 722, the Assyrians come in and they conquer Israel, right? Shalmaneser comes in and he uh, besieges all of Israel. Well, Shalmaneser was the king of Assyria. And uh, not long after all of this, Shalmaneser was overthrown by a guy by the name of Sargon. Sargon II. And Sargon ends up dying in battle. But he has a son by the name of Sennacherib. You can say that. It's fun to say. Try it. Sennacherib. Sennacherib becomes king in 705 BC. So not quite 20 years after Israel has been sacked by the Assyrians. And Sennacherib was, and the Assyrians in general, but especially Sennacherib was an incredibly ruthless king. And these are the people that God sent in to discipline Israel. But listen to some of these things about Sennacherib. Uh, he He was incredibly arrogant Uh, God allowed him to come in and sack Israel and parts of Judah. But listen to some of his arrogance. Here's what he writes about himself. Sennacherib, the great king. He writes this about himself on these. uh, I'm going to show you these things that he had put out all over the kingdom. The great king, the mighty king, the king of the world, king of Assyria, king of four quarters, the wise shepherd, a favorite of the gods. He's not done. The guardian of right, the lover of justice. He sounds like a superhero, like proclaiming himself, doesn't he? That's how, that's how he viewed himself. He was so arrogant. And 
The one who lends support, who comes to the aid of the destitute, who performs pious acts, the perfect hero, the mighty man, the first among all princes, the powerful one who consumes the insubmissive, who strikes the wicked with the thunderbolt, the god of Assur, the great mountain, unrivaled kinship has been entrusted to me, and all those who dwell under me are under his favor. And it goes on. Like, that's half of the paragraph I had there to read to you of his arrogance. Well, Sennacherib was incredibly arrogant, and he was incredibly brutal as a king. And what he would do, and what the Assyrians would do when it said Shalmaneser, two kings before him, would come in and besiege Israel, uh, Sennacherib stepped it up a notch. When they would besiege a city, what they would do is they would surround a fortified city. All the army, right? Have I talked to you about this before? They would surround the city with all the people. I guess we did last week with, uh, with Jericho. But they would surround the city, and the Assyrians were brutal because um, they would force everyone inside the city walls, and they would engage in uh, psychological warfare. Uh, This is siege warfare. They knew that half the battle was in the people's minds, Sennacherib did, and he knew if I could defeat their will that he would win the battle. And here's some of the ruthlessness of of his uh, reign as the king of Assyria. He would post signs of his enemies impaled on spears, of kings being skinned. Uh, He would pile up skulls of his enemies outside the city walls to say, don't mess with Sennacherib. And then what he would do is he would write about all his battles on these clay prisms and he would place them all over his empire. You can see one here on the screen. This is actually in the University of Chicago. It's called Sennacherib's Prism. There's three of them that have been found. And on each side of this prism, uh, you can't read it uh, unless you know uh, Aramaic and Hebrew and stuff like that. But trust me on this. There's people who can who have translated it for us. And on each of these sides of this prism are eight of his conquests of Sennacherib's and eight of his campaigns. And in each of his campaigns, what he would do is he would go out in a campaign around cities and he would uh, besiege them. He would surround them with his army. He would wait them out. He would shout insults over the wall at them. He would starve them out. He would actually bake bread outside the city walls and let the smell of the bread loft inside of the city walls so that people would get hungry. And he'd be like, hey, just come out and you can have some bread and we'll kill you. And, I mean, that's kind of that's what he was doing, right? And he was, he was messing with their minds. And he was ruthless and brutal. And his, each of this prism, of each of these eight campaigns, it says, I went out of my campaign, I, I besieged and conquered this city, and then I went to this city, and I besieged and conquered this city, and then I went to this city, and I besieged and conquered this city, and then I came back from my campaign. Every campaign works that way, except for one. Except for one. Uh, Look at this in 2 Kings chapter 18. Not long after Israel's been sacked and Sennacherib comes to power, he's hungry for more. He doesn't just want Israel, he wants Judah. And he begins going after them in 2 Kings chapter 18. But if you look at verse 7 of of 2 Kings chapter 18, it says, And the Lord was with him uh, whenever he went, talking about Hezekiah, who was the king of Judah, Uh, Whenever he went out, he prospered, and he, Hezekiah, rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Talking about Sennacherib. Now, Sennacherib, in his prism, when he talks about, when he goes, gets to Jerusalem to siege Jerusalem, 
Here's what the prism says. As for Hezekiah, king of Judah, he refused to submit to my yoke. This prism is from that time period. And Sennacherib's writing on it the same thing that you have in your Bible, that Hezekiah wouldn't obey him. And then the prism goes on and uh, Sennacherib says, I besieged and conquered 46 fortified cities in Judah. 2 Kings 18 verse 13 says, Sennacherib attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. The Bible agrees with the prism. The prism agrees with the Bible. Then the prism tells us on column three that Hezekiah paid me tribute in the amount of 800 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Uh, the text tells us in Second Kings, the king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. They're like, hold on, I know math. 300 and 800 are not the same. Except when you find out there were two different measurements between the Assyrians and the Israelites on a talent, you find out that that 800 and 300 is almost exactly the same. The prism tells us, Sennacherib says, I locked up Hezekiah in his capital city, Jerusalem, like a bird in a cage. Second Kings uh, chapter 18, verse 17 says, the king of Assyria sent a large army to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And, Hez- and Sennacherib comes and he surrounds Jerusalem. He wants the big prize. He wants Jerusalem. And he surrounds it with his army. And uh, you read about this in chapter 19 of Second Kings. And as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and he went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the house, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amaz. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there's no strength to bring them forth. Seemed pretty bad at this point. Uh, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. They're going to take us. It may be, though, that the Lord your God heard the wounds of uh, Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Well, uh, Sennacherib uh, goes on to defy the Lord and he sends a letter. Uh, to Hezekiah saying, hey, what I did to all those other cities, I'm about to do to you. Just give up now. But he doesn't. Instead, Hezekiah, verse 14, he takes the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. And he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and their lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of man's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Well, fast forward uh, to the end of chapter 19. God answers Hezekiah's prayer. And that night, the angel of the Lord, who I believe, again, I told you is Jesus, went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. So the Assyrians are all camped around Jerusalem. Hezekiah is locked up in the temple praying, as, as Sennacherib says, like a bird in a cage. 
And then an angel of the Lord, I believe the Lord Jesus himself, comes down and strikes down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. Well, I told you on this prism, after every one of his campaigns, he says, I conquered, I besieged, I conquered this city. I besieged, I conquered this city. I besieged, I conquered this city. And then I went home. That was the end of my campaign. And here's how successful my campaign was. Look at what it says after this campaign. He says, I locked up Hezekiah in his capital city, Jerusalem, like a bird in a cage. And he never completes what he writes about his third campaign. This incredibly arrogant king, Sennacherib, never mentions a word about how he ends up back in Nineveh. But he just says, in my fourth campaign, I turned to the Chaldeans. His silence is deafening. The fact that he doesn't say anything about what happened because he got routed himself uh, by the angel of the Lord. And in his arrogance, he doesn't want to mention it. And in every, but the Bible tells us what happens. And I bring all this up and I go down this rabbit trail uh, so that you would see that there is a, a, a piece from that very time period that matches exactly what your Bible says. And so anyone who would tell you, no, the accounts in the Bible, those historical accounts are all good stories, but there's nothing really to back them up. I just showed you one major, major find that totally backs it up. You can trust this word. It is true. It is from the Lord. And so when we see these people choosing to sin and choosing to suffer and being taken into captivity, we should pay attention because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we should too choose to obey and learn from their mistakes. Amen? Well, uh, Sennacherib fails to get Judah because God had a different plan and Judah gets taken down in 586 B.C., And it actually goes in three waves, starting in 605, the first year of King Nebuchadnezzar. He comes, and he comes to Jerusalem, and he takes away all of uh, the leading uh, people of Jerusalem. The religious leaders, the government leaders, those who are of royal descent. He takes all of them away in this first wave of deportation out of Israel. And among them is a guy you know by the name of Dave or Daniel. Excuse me. Have you heard of Daniel? What do you know about Daniel? Daniel in the lion's den, right? You ever see the um, you ever see the flannel graph or the picture? You know this little boy Daniel in the lion's den. Except actually, it was probably old man Daniel, grandpa Daniel by that time in the lion's den. Well, Daniel, when he was young, look at Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This is in 605 B.C. And the Lord gave, look at verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of his house. Do you notice that in verse 2? It says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. You know what this tells me here and and some of the other stories we've looked at and even today? God is in control of who's in control. Think about that for a second. God is in control of who's in control. 
Many have made a, a good argument that David, or Daniel, excuse me, as he's taken into exile, he's taken into Babylon, into a place uh, where there was incredible uh, wickedness, incredible idolatry and self-indulgence. And he's taken into this land, into this uh, empire of Babylon, which is referred to often in the Bible as the most wicked. And yet Daniel thrives there. It was God's plan that he was in Babylon. God used it for Daniel and for his people to thrive. Um, God was in control of Nebuchadnezzar being in control. And whatever it is we're facing today, remember the fact that God still is in control of who's in control. Whether a good king or a bad king, a good president or a bad president, a good empire or a bad empire, God will use that for his end, for his story. And that's what he does with Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, he uses Nebuchadnezzar to bring all of Israel into Babylon. And they're there for 70 years. The prophet Isaiah tells us, in, in, or Jeremiah, excuse me, tells us in Jeremiah chapter 25. He's like, I preached for, I think it's 24 or 23 years to you people. I warned you that if you kept sinning, you were going to suffer, but nobody listened. How would you like that ministry? Preach for 24 years and no response. Everybody just sits and looks at you. And then they try to kill you because that's what they did with Jeremiah. Then they tried to kill him. It was pretty awesome for Jeremiah. So, but then guess what? What exactly what he said? He said, uh, God's going to send someone. He's going to send Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to take you guys and take you into exile because of your sin, because you refuse to listen. And that's exactly what happens. And Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he takes them in three waves, starting with Daniel and all the leaders. And over time, all of God's people end up, by 586, all of Judah has been exiled to Babylon in modern-day Iraq. But Jeremiah, when he said this, he prophesied, he said, listen, God's going to discipline you. He's going to take you out of this land, but he's also going to restore you back. There's still hope when you repent. There's still hope. And after 70 years, he's going to bring you back. Well, guess what happens exactly? We're skipping over big parts of the story, I know. But 70 years later, guess what happens? Exactly. There's a group of people that come back to Jerusalem. And they're led first by a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. It's a fun name to say again too, right? Like Sennacherib, Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. The temple, Solomon had built this beautiful temple and Nebuchadnezzar had totally destroyed it. But Zerubbabel comes and rebuilds it. And you can read about that in Ezra and in Haggai. And uh, then after Zerubbabel, then Ezra comes. And Ezra comes, Zerubbabel built the temple, Ezra built the people. And he brings marriage reforms, and he brings other religious reforms, and he builds into the hearts of the people. And then after Ezra, 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 another wave of people come, led by a guy by the name of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah rebuilds the city of Jerusalem and its walls. And God restored them back. But the promise of what he had promised to them, of what it was going to be like after they restored it, was nowhere near as great as God had promised. And so there's still fulfillment left to be made. And after Nehemiah ends, we're left with the people who have come back into the land, and then the New Testament just, or the Old Testament just stops. Like that's the end of the Old Testament. 
We've gone from Genesis 3.15 through all this, uh, into Egypt, into the wilderness, into, into Israel, then exiled out, then back in and rebuilt, and then nothing. Silence. For 400 years, the, the, the biblical account goes silent. Now, God was still at work during those 400 years. But over the next 400 years, other empires would rise and fall, and it would set the stage for the promise from Genesis 3.15 to come on the scene. Jesus Christ. And he would come, and he would be the fix that everyone was waiting for the entire time in the Old Testament. And God worked, if you think about it, God worked every other conceivable plan, and every other plan didn't work. As if God was saying, you can't do it on your own. I'm the only one who can fix this. So before we get there, so you don't doubt it, I'm going to prove to you that every other method doesn't work. It doesn't work with judges. It doesn't work with kings. None of it works. You need me. And he sends Jesus. And Jesus comes and fixes the mess. That's the end of the Old Testament. You know the whole story now. Like, kind of. You can go back and you can listen. You can know the whole story. That all of it, here's what you need to know. It all points to Jesus. It all does. Next Sunday, we're going to start a five-week series uh, uh, through the five solas of the Reformation. 500 years ago, um, there was a Reformation in the church. where, And not, just a reform, not really a Reformation like things were changed, but people went back to the truth of Scripture. And uh, we're going to be looking at that because this October marks 500 years from the time, the, the really kind of the seminal moment in the Reformation when Martin Luther pounded 95 theses on the door of the church. And uh, it was 500 years ago this Halloween. If you needed something else to celebrate on Halloween, you can celebrate that. And uh, 500 years ago it happened. And so we're going to start next Sunday kind of building off of this story through the Old Testament by starting with Sola Christas. That it's all about Jesus and Jesus alone. And salvation is through him alone. Amen? All right. Well, that was a unique series. It was less really diving into God's word and more giving you a big picture. But I hope it was helpful. Let me pray. We'll take our offering. We'll sing. And we'll call it a morning. Father, thank you for Jesus and your grace to us through him. Thank you too, Lord, that uh, your word is true. Uh, As we saw this morning, that it's reliable. That it lines up historically. And uh, that we can trust it. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for each of us and for our church that we would trust you and would trust your word. Would believe your word and would act upon it. Um, I pray for those, Lord, who've never trusted you, who've never repented of their sin and, uh, and become a Christian. That even today might be the day they would. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray all of this through him. Amen.